Lord God, we thank you, Lord, just for this sweet time of worship it's been. God, to feel your presence and your Holy Spirit that's welcome here. God, fill our hearts, continue to fill our hearts, Lord, with this sense of your presence and just your spirit moving upon us, Lord. And no matter where we're at, if you're connected online or no matter if you're here right now, whatever's going on, Lord, we just want to seek you right now. We want to just focus in on you and be with you. And as we get into your word now, Lord, I pray that you would bless your word, that you'd speak to our hearts. And we thank you, God, so much for all that's in our mind as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter. And even with this passage tonight, Lord, may it just continue to put our hearts in the right place, Lord to focus in on what you have done for us, Lord, what you have done for love. God, what you have sacrificed for us, Lord, who don't deserve it. Thank you, God, for the cross, for dying for our sins. Thank you for purchasing our salvation. So, God, I pray you bless your word now, anointed with your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I read about this old preacher who lay dying in his hospital bed and He asked the nurse if she could go and get his state congressman and the state senator so he could die in peace. Well, the nurse wondered how they would help his suffering here, but she agreed to make the arrangements. And then uh, he asked the nurse that when they arrived to put one on the left side of him and put the other on the right side of him. Well, the nurse was curious when she asked why this kind of arrangement would help him have peace. He said, I want to die like my Lord did, between two thieves. Well, that was a, even though that was a joke, he was probably joking there, it must have been something unexpected for the nurse to hear. Tonight, as we take a break from our study in the book of Luke, we will spend this time in Isaiah chapter 53. And in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 53, we find this unexpected prophecy, actually, of the Messiah, in that when Jesus came, he did not come to conquer the world, kind of like we've been seeing in the book of Luke, but to actually suffer and die for the world, for our sins. So, tonight I've titled our message The Suffering Messiah. The Suffering Messiah. We're going to be studying once again the whole chapter, Isaiah 53, from verses 1 through 12. We're going to take on this whole chapter. And here we're going to find four things. And this is our outline, and it's really our points, too. And I'll give it to you right now. Number one is the people's rejection, number two, the pain and sorrow. Number three, the pleas, the plea of silence. And number four, the plan of redemption. So that's what we're going to be covering. That's really going to be our points throughout the chapter. But let's begin here now. The Suffering Messiah, a title once again. And now number one, the people's rejection. The people's rejection. Now with this, we're going to be covering verses one through three. One through three in this section. So let's go ahead and read these verses together. It says here in Isaiah 53, verse 1, 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Now we'll stop right there for this section. We begin here with really a question here in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what we're saying here? Who has believed this prophecy and what it's saying? In other words, who will believe what it's saying about the suffering Messiah? And as we get into this chapter, that's what we are going to find. And it says in verse 1, And to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed. Now, the arm of the Lord speaks of his power, the, the, the powerful work that he does. So it's like Isaiah here is saying, uh, writing here, who will truly understand the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the powerful work of God that's going to happen in the suffering Messiah. So who can believe in this first verse, who can believe that the Messiah will suffer and it will be a powerful work of the Lord? I mean, how can this be? I mean, right away, I, I think that Isaiah will, will bring forth here in this prophecy just to set up our minds like, wait, uh, how can this be? How can this be of God? How can be the Messiah come and not conquer and bring in the kingdom? How can the Messiah come and not conquer the enemies in the world? And he suffers? Can this really be of God? Now, remember, as we've been studying in the book of Luke, that was the thinking of the the Jewish mind at that time, during the time of Jesus, right? They believed the Messiah would come and usher in the kingdom, that he would come in conquering, that he would come in glory, that he would come and, and, and take over the Romans and set up the kingdom of God and Israel would be there. Well, that's the idea in setting up our mind and the reader and the listener of this prophecy that, hey, is this really what is going to happen? Who can believe that? That the Messiah's suffering is going to be the work of God? So I really like that in verse 1 because it's setting our mind up to what is going to follow. So he goes on in verse 2. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, with that, the Messiah is told to come that he's going to grow up like this plant that's been planted and it grows up, a young plant that sprouts up from the ground. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about, in other words, the Messiah will be born on this earth. This Messiah will be born as a baby and will grow up now. This is speaking of the incarnation when God came to this world and became flesh, where God became flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as we know. So the Messiah will grow up, will be like a baby, it will be a baby born and then grow up, and it says like a root out of the dry ground. Now we 
when we look at the word root, I think about it could possibly referring to how in early on in Isaiah, there's a prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David, come from the root of Jesse. So it could be connected to that. But also this plant that's planted, and I think it's more like that in the earth, it's being planted in the dry ground, which speaks of the, uh, of the spiritual, spiritually dry Israel at that time. At the time when Jesus came, we know that uh, God hadn't spoken to Israel. God hadn't really spoken directly to Israel for 400 years. You know how we know? Because the last time God spoke to Israel was in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And then God sent John the Baptist to speak for God. And that was like 400 years between in that time. So when Jesus appeared, Israel was spiritually dry. They were dry ground. And then it says in verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So now the prophecy goes on to say the Messiah, when he comes, uh, he's going to come with an unexpected look, like the, the way he actually looks. He has no Form. Now, that's not speaking that Jesus or the Messiah comes as a ghost or some spirit. No, it's talking about he, he doesn't stand out. That's basically the idea. There, he comes with no majesty. Like he doesn't come as a king in all its glory and pomp. And there's nothing about him that would attract us to him. He's, he's not like no beauty. He's not handsome. He's not like this leader guy, head you know, and above, you know, head and shoulders above everybody. Oh, here's the king, here's the leader. Yeah, he looks like the guy. No, none of that. None that would, people would desire to even follow him. So all of this is saying, the idea is that the Messiah will not stand out in his looks. You know, I found something interesting. There's a book called the Ark Ark let's see, Arco volume, which is actually a collection of documents found tucked away in the back of the Vatican. And I'm not saying this is true or this is super accurate, but I think it's interesting because in this book is a supposed uh, physical description of Jesus. So I thought this was interesting, so I'll give it to you. It says in this volume, he is the picture of his mother, only he has not her smooth round face. Uh, it goes on to say he is tall and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy complexion. I think that means he's dark, like a typical Middle Eastern dark. Uh, it goes on to say in this description of Jesus, his eyes are large and soft blue and rather dull and heavy. The lashes are long and his eyebrows very large. His nose is that of a Jew. In fact, he reminds me of an old-fashioned Jew in every sense of the world, of the word. Now, I don't, I'm not saying this is true or exact, but it, to me it's interesting because it goes along with what is written here in Isaiah verse 2 about his looks. He's, it's not like you can really recognize, and that's really the idea. And, and we know that, right? We know that 
that Jesus wasn't like some of people go, oh yeah, he, you know, that you could point him out. It's not like, you know, he had some halo on his, over his head. And he glowed and people said, oh, that must be the Messiah. No, he was like this normal, everyday person. He did not stand out. Matter of fact, we understand that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the temple police came to arrest him, right? They didn't know exactly who the Messiah was. But Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he told them, well, it's the one I, I give a kiss, who I go and greet and so that was the only way they knew that this was the Messiah. So we see this prophecy, I believe, did come true, that the Messiah, Jesus, was not a real standout in his looks. Then verse 3, we find this. He was despised and rejected by men. So it goes along to tell us that something unexpected happened. It wasn't like the Messiah arrived, everyone embraced him. He was actually despised and rejected by the world. And in particular, the very people he came to first, which was Israel, which was the Jews. They were the ones who should have accepted their Messiah. But he was despised, he was rejected... And we see here, because of that, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We just sang about that, didn't we? That song is about this verse, this chapter, what we're looking at tonight. He, because of the rejection, that's what his life was like. Full of sorrow, you know, a grief. And it says something interesting here. As one from whom men hid or hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. We didn't consider him. The people didn't consider him as the Messiah. They uh, hid their faces. In other words, they did not acknowledge him as the Messiah, but rejected him, and they did not respect Jesus. So we see the Messiah was actually, when he came, like this everyday normal person, was despised. Uh, the Messiah is rejected by his own people. Now we know this is Jesus, right? Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of the Messiah we're looking at here. In John 1.11, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I remember Pastor Don Stewart, when he came and spoke years ago here, and said, this is the saddest verse in the Bible. The Messiah, Jesus comes to his own people, but they did not receive him. And I think about, here's the creator come to his creation and who created us human beings, yet he was rejected. So in this first section, this describes the people's rejection. Why? Because the Messiah didn't fit their mold. Because Jesus didn't fit their mold. This describes the people's rejection because the Messiah didn't fit their mold. They were expecting something else. They were expecting the Messiah to come in all of his glory. But what, he was born here? Wait, well, isn't he supposed to? And we know the second coming. He's coming from, in, from the sky, right? Riding on this white horse. But no, the Messiah came born as a human being. He was just a normal looking guy. He came humbly and so that didn't fit the idea of what the Messiah should have been. You know, in the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish commentary, uh, which was written around 200 
between 200 and 500 B.C., the rabbis in the Talmud, in the commentary of, of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, they historically said that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. Historically, that's what they're saying in the Talmud. But then in the 11th century A.D., a rabbi named Rashi changed and stated that it is not about the Messiah, that actually Isaiah 53 is about the suffering of the nation of Israel. And you know why he said that? Well, because there was controversy going on because a lot of the Jews were, were thinking that Jesus of Nazareth, I think he was the Messiah. If you read Isaiah 53, what else can you think, right? So they didn't want this rabbi, want the Jews to think Jesus is the Messiah. So he changed the meaning of it and he rejected the Messiah. It didn't, Jesus didn't fit into the mold and what he expected the, these verses, he just thought, well, no, it has to be about the suffering of Israel. So this describes the people's rejection because the Messiah didn't fit into their mold. You know, I was thinking about that. Sometimes we have expectations, don't we, of what God should do or how he should do something or, 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 or how he's going to fix my life or come into my life or answer my prayers. And sometimes our expectations, what we think God is supposed to do, uh, doesn't happen. We put God into this mold and we want him to work in that way, but we have lost, really, the true understanding of what the Word says. Are you doubting God because He didn't work the way you expected? Are you doubting because you're trying to fit Him into your ways of what you want, your mold of what God should be? Perhaps you should rethink why you have those expectations and get into the word again and, and see who God really is. God is sovereign and God may not do exactly what you think because his thoughts, what, aren't our thoughts, right? His ways are way above our ways. So we have to submit to that and understand, hey, God's working. Just because it doesn't look like in he is because in the way we want him to work, it doesn't mean he's not working. So we see this introduction really to the suffering Messiah and we find out it's the people's rejection, first of all. Let's go to number two now, the pain and sorrow, the pain and sorrow. Here we're going to cover verses four through six, verses four through six. So let's take a look at these, these set of verses, starting with verse four. Surely is borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's the song. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this prophecy goes on to tell us in this set of verses that, you know what, the, the Messiah's suffering, it was really for us. It was really for us. It says here in verse 4, Surely he is born. He has carried our griefs, notice, and carried our sorrows. In other words, the Messiah suffered 
and, and he suffered the pain and the and all the the consequences of our sins, our sins, the sorrow and grief that we go through now because of our sins. But uh, sadly, yet we, the people, esteemed him stricken, that is struck down. Smitten means like like a punished and killed, and afflicted meaning like beaten. Uh, in, in other words, we esteem, we, we, we said, no, no, that's, that's not what's going on. It, it was Jesus. That he, was, he did something wrong, and so the Lord struck him down. The Lord punished him. The Lord beat him, where it says, by God. The Jews thought God was punishing Jesus for, for his own wrongs, his own sins and blasphemy. But we know Jesus was the perfect, unblemished sacrifice, the Lamb of God. So verse 5, it clears up, no, no, but he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. It's talking about the breaking of the laws and the word of God. Our, uh, we can say, disobedience to God's word. And he was crushed now for our iniquities. It speaks of our wickedness, our evil, our sin in that way. The Messiah then Upon him was the chastisement. In other words, the punishment, our punishment that we should have had, well, he took upon himself, and that work that he did, that act that he did, has brought us peace, and that's peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are healed both uh, spiritually and we are healed physically. So the Messiah suffered not because his punish, because he was punished for his own sins, but because he took the punishment for us. Jesus was perfect. He did not sin. We know that the scripture tells us, but it was for our sins. You know, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve went against God, right? And every generation of human being after that was cursed with that sinful flesh, the sin nature after that. And so the consequences of our sin is what? Bondage to sin and death. And so we are spiritually messed up. We spiritually died and we needed spiritual healing. The curse also brought sickness, physical sickness and disease into the world. And that's what we see today. We live in a fallen world. But the Messiah, what Jesus did, he took on that punishment, what we deserve for our sin. And he made it possible for us to be forgiven. He made it possible for for us to be freed from the bondage of sin. He made it possible so that Death is not the end of everything, but we can have eternal life. He made it possible to not be spiritually sick or dead, but that we can have new life, healing in our spirit with Christ. And he made it possible for God to justly now heal us physically if he wills. Now, take note, some claim this verse with his wounds i'm going to be healed it says in isaiah 53 and and it 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 doesn't mean it's this blanket uh healing promise yes uh god will heal everyone of their sickness and diseases when we go to heaven get a glorified body right 
But it's not like a blanket promise that we can be healed of everything. I mean, if it's His will, then He, he can justly heal us because Christ died on the cross. That's really the idea. We know in the, the New Testament that different people were sick, you know. And it, it, so, like, um, Timothy wasn't feeling good, yeah. And Paul told Timothy, hey, take this ailment, yeah, to help your stomach. He didn't claim this verse and pray upon it. So sometimes in God's sovereign will, we are sick, we experience sickness, but any healing that comes, it is because of Christ. All right, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So I like this right away, all. Yeah? Every one of us includes every one of us. All we, every one of us, have sinned, you guys. We've fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we're like sheep who've gone astray. We've wandered away like sheep, like lost, wandered away from the shepherd God. Every one of us has strayed, and we've turned everyone, what? To his own way. No longer following the shepherd, no longer following God, no longer following what God intended in his word, but what? Just doing what we want to do. Living in a way that pleases our, our sinful nature. Uh, pleasing ourself, yeah? feeding our pride. All these things, we've gone our own way. We've turned away from God's way. But in order to make a way back for us, to be part of the flock of God, the Lord God, it says, the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on the Messiah all of our iniquity, all of our wickedness, all of our sin upon him. So this goes along with how Jesus took the punishment we deserve, which is suffering and death. That, that's what we deserve. We deserve that punishment. But Jesus took that. Jesus suffered and died in our place. And this is what is technically, theologically called the substitutionary atonement. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this section, this describes the pain and sorrow Jesus went through to atone for our sins, to atone for your sins. This describes the pain and sorrow Jesus went through to atone for your sins. You know, I, I, when I think about this, I think about the song, remember the old song, Here I Am to Worship? Uh, we were singing it in the Keiki Church the other day, other week. And the bridge says, I never uh, know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. You know, and that always makes me think about how Christ took upon himself my sins. Yeah? Was laid on him. Every one of my wrong choices. Every one of my rebellious sin. When God told me not to do something, and I did it. All the, the, every evil thought or, or wicked attitude in my heart, every sinful words that came out of my mouth, every single sin yeah, that, that, that 
came upon, uh, uh, that I did, came upon Christ. Yeah. He took all of that. He took that punishment for it. I, you know what? I think of this. I think of how it says in here, the iniquity of us all. Now, he bore my sin, but think about the iniquity of us all. The whole world's sin was put upon him. Every lie, every deceit, every cheat, every, every crime, every murder, every abuse and injustice, every kind of evil that humans do to each other and against God, Jesus took that upon his body. He gave himself to be our atonement. Let me ask you tonight, are you looking to atone for your sins? Is that what you've been trying to do? I mean, perhaps you punish yourself into thinking, well, I, 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 I need to do something to atone for my sins. Uh, it's okay I'm going through this pain. It's okay I'm under this heavy guilt. It's okay because I need to atone for my own sins. Sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we, we, we punish ourselves in that way by, by letting the guilt and everything weigh heavy upon us, thinking, well, well, that'll make me feel better. But it doesn't, does it? That condemnation, all of that only makes you feel worse. And no matter what you may do to keep yourself in that place, no matter what you think, well, that'll atone for my sins and then it'll go away. You know what? It doesn't go away. You know why? Because you can't atone for your own sins. Only Jesus can take away that guilt and pain. If you're living that way, go to Jesus right now. He can forgive you. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. He suffered for you to atone for your sins. And that's why he had to come as the suffering Messiah. All right, let's go to number three. Number three is the plea of silence. The plea of silence. We've seen the people's rejection, the pain and the sorrow. And now number three, the plea of silence. Verse seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the prophecy gives us a little more about the Messiah, that even though the Messiah was under the oppression and judgment, oppression talks about how he was un, un, unjustly treated, how he was afflicted with, with um, treating the, treated unjustly, abused, all of that put upon him, betrayed. You know what? Even with that, even with the uh, uh, judgment, which was that the sentence that was given him, the sentence to death that was unjustly given. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was taken away to the cross and arrested and, and condemned. And that, uh, even with all of that, he, uh, he was oppressed and afflicted. Oh, sorry, I was in verse 8. Huh? Verse 7, <laughs> um, he, he, he opened not his mouth like a, 
a lamb. He kept quiet even under that. He he was led to the slaughter uh, like a lamb and like a sheep that before it was silent, he opened not his mouth. The Messiah stayed quiet. He did not defend himself. And the Messiah, even though he was unjustly treated, he submitted to what was going on. He was quiet. You remember Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin on the last night of of his life? He what? Kept silent. When Jesus was brought before Herod on the day of his death, he kept silent, right? In that morning before the cross. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, the very one who could release him, he could have given a defense. He could have said something about all the lies and the false witnesses that were coming against him. But Jesus did not make any defense. He did not complain about injustice. He did not try and make a plea bargain. Yeah, But his defense, his plea, was silence. In Matthew 27, 14, it says, But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. That's Jesus. He stayed silent. And so by oppression again, the abuse, the judgment, the sentence. He was taken away, as I mentioned, to be crucified. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. What's that saying? His generation, the people who lived at that time, they didn't care that the the Messiah would be cut off. Like he would, uh, his life would end early. That's what it's saying there. That this the generation, the people there, they didn't really care that he was to die. They didn't care about the Messiah. And so the prophecy, in a way, in this verse asks, does anyone even realize that? Does everyone, anyone even see what's happening here? And then verse 9, it's interesting. And they made, um, they made, they made his grave with the wicked. So the people back then, uh, uh, they, they made, they put him uh, into a grave for the wicked. Or that was their plan, to treat the Messiah as a criminal and throw him in the grave for criminals. And back then, that's what Roman soldiers did. They would crucify a criminal and then throw their dead bodies, of all the dead bodies of these criminals, in this mass grave. But that was the plan, but that's not what how it ended. It ended with a rich, rich man in his death. So though he was treated like a criminal when he was buried, it was like he was a rich man. He ended up being buried in a rich man's tomb. And we know that story, right? In, in Matthew chapter 27, Joseph of Arimathea requested Jesus' body, buried him in his tomb, a rich man's tomb. And this prophecy was fulfilled exactly with Jesus Christ. So he was stricken the transgression of, uh, for the transgression of the people. Again, uh, end of verse 8 talks about that. He, he ended up in this tomb of a rich man. Although he had done no violence, in other words, he did no wrong, and there was no deceit. He, he, he didn't trick or fool anybody yet. He stayed silent, yet he died. So this describes the plea of silence Jesus gave. No defense, 
even being totally innocent. So that's that plea of silence. You know, it made me think about when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter started to wildly, wildly defend Jesus, right? Taking the sword out and, and swinging it around. Uh, but Jesus told him to put that away. And in Matthew 26, verse 53 and 54, listen, he said this. Jesus told Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's... Uh, uh, 72,000 angels. 12 legions of Roman soldiers are 72,000. So Jesus says, hey, I could just call out and 72,000 angels could come in my defense and, and take care of everything. We know that, I believe it was the Assyrians were killed by one angel, 185,000 of them. Then Jesus said in verse 54, Matthew 26, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. I like that. Yeah. That Christ is saying, no, let it be. So the scriptures would be fulfilled. And I think he was talking about what we're reading right here. Jesus could have stopped it all. Jesus could have said, that's it, no more. But he was willing and he willingly laid down his life for you. So Jesus willingly died like a criminal to save us criminals. That's what I think, who have broken the law of God. So we see the suffering Messiah here, the people's rejection, the pain and the sorrow, the plea of silence, and number four, the plan of redemption. This is our last heading, verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's stop right there. The, the amazing fact here in what we're reading is that yet all the suffering of the Messiah, it was the will of the Lord. This was God's plan. This was God's will to crush the Messiah, to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring that's why you see what it's talking about is that when uh, the Messiah brings this offering himself as an atonement to die for us for our guilt the sin that we have committed you know what the result is then the Messiah shall see his Offspring. It speaks about those who are saved, the children of God, those who are saved under him. And then I think this is great. And he shall prolong his days, verse 10. In other words, he will live forever. And this is the will of the Lord. He shall, uh, uh, Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, the salvation work that he did, it will prosper. It will go out. People will be saved. And so I like this. He'll prolong his days. And with that, a, a lot of people will be saved and go on to heaven. And you know what this is talking about? This all means the Messiah, yeah, he'll die, but he will rise again from the dead. This is talking about the resurrection. 
the resurrection here. And then verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and bear, and he shall bear their iniquities. So out of the anguish, out of the suffering will come really the fulfillment. He shall see and be satisfied. He'll see the fulfillment of his work on the cross, of what was planned, the knowledge uh, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Through this knowledge or plan, many will be made righteous, accounted to be made righteous by the blood of Christ, by the one who bore our iniquities. And then verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. Now, This is talking about since Jesus suffered and died for you, God will divide him a portion. In other words, the Messiah will receive honor. God will give him honor, a portion. Um, He shall be a portion with the many. Um, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's really talking about uh, how a victorious soldier will get a portion, yeah, will get the winnings, right? Um, that's what it's talking about. Jesus will conquer sin and death. And so he'll be rewarded with his people belonging to him, with the church. And he'll be rewarded and honored by the Father in sitting on that seat, on that throne next to the Father at that right hand. And so because, why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated like a criminal. He he sacrificed his life to the death. And why? He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. So he bore our sins once again. And I think this is interesting. At the end of verse 12, it says, and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know that Right now, in, from the book of Hebrews, we know that Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us, and he continues to intercede for us. And he, he prays for us to grow and to be sanctified. He prays for us to people to be saved, and he's interceding. I think it also includes this. I think when he was dying for sinners, he even made intercession for sinners. You remember on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think it, it, it even conclu- includes that, and it started there. All right, so our last point is this. This describes the plan of redemption completed by the work of Jesus on the cross. This describes the plan of redemption completed by the work of Jesus on the cross. This was, this was the plan all along. This was how God was to save us and bring salvation. We could not do it on our own. We can't atone for our own sins. There's nothing there. We can't do enough good stuff. None of our works and efforts would, would get close to redeeming ourselves. It had to be done through Jesus Christ who came. God, the Son, becoming flesh to be born a baby a baby boy to grow up and then one day die on a cross for our sins. That was the only way. 
It's unexpected. It, it wasn't what people were looking for. But remember, Jesus kept talking about in the Gospels that the kingdom of God is here. And probably it perked people's ears like, oh, oh, the Messiah is here. He's going to take over the Romans. But you know what? Jesus was really talking about the spiritual kingdom that needs to come into our hearts. So that's what had to happen first. We had to be saved. We had we have to be changed, renewed. The second coming, he's going to come in all of his glory. But this first coming was this plan of redemption. And it was completed, fulfilled, satisfied by the work of Jesus on the cross. And you know what's great? Jesus did that work. Think about that. He did that work to save us. Ours is just to believe and commit our lives yeah, to him, to give our lives to him. That, that, that's all we need to do. A number of years ago, I was thinking about this. Kristen and I, we updated our, our living trust. Basically, it, it, it's our, our will. Um, we, at that time, we had recently uh, purchased this house, and I uh, thought, well, we better get the house in the will, in the living trust. And uh, Actually, we hadn't done it for like so long that Janelle wasn't even in, in it. And it was like, oh, we better get all of this. And so, so we met with a lawyer and, and got it all updated, answered all of her questions. And, and then we left. And you know what? This lawyer and the office, and her, they did all the work. We just came in when it was ready, uh, signed the papers, you know, and that was it. Her and her office, the lawyer, did all the work. They put the documents together. They provided the legal work wording they even did a little filing thing for the house indeed in court and they did all the notary work i mean we, we didn't have to do any anything all we did was make our commitment by signing the paperwork well that's like what we need to do with jesus he did all the work of salvation yeah we just need to quote unquote sign with our commitment to him by just praying, by just giving our heart and believing in Him. Now, the one difference here with you know our trust and the lawyers is we had to pay the lawyer. But we know Jesus paid for our salvation. So we don't have to pay Him. We just got to believe in what He did. We just got to accept that, wow, Jesus, you died on the cross for us. You atoned for our sins. Yeah, all I need to do is believe that He Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth as a baby, grew and died on a cross for us. And he rose again from the dead. That God the Son did that. That's it. All we need to do is believe that and commit our lives to him. And you know what? Then we're forgiven. Then we're saved. Then, then we have a future in heaven. That's it. All we need to do is come to the cross. I'm going to close with this. The early church father, uh, Jerome. Now, if you don't know, early church fathers, that's what they're called. They're, they're the leaders of the church after the apostles. After the generation of apostles, when they passed away, the next generation of leaders were what we call the early church fathers. They're the, the, the leaders back then. And one of them, Jerome, there's a story goes how 
Jerome, he lived in Bethlehem. And the reason he lived there was only because it was the birthplace of Jesus. And um, before he fully really accepted what Jesus had done for him, he thought he'd go and live there, hopefully, you know, finding favor with God. Well, the story goes on that uh, he felt if he labored daily to make himself worthy of God's favor, then, well, God... Jesus would accept him. So he didn't really understand everything. One night, the story goes, he had a dream where Jesus came and paid him a visit. Well, Jerome, in this dream, collected all his money and offered it to Jesus as a gift. But Jesus told him, I don't want your money. Then Jerome, he, he, he rounded up all his possessions, brought them to Jesus and offered them to Jesus. But then Jesus said, Jerome, I don't want your possessions. Frantically, Jesus, you know, just just in desperation, turned Jerome, uh, frantically, Jerome in desperation, turned to Jesus and asked him, Lord, what can I give you? What do you want? And you know what Jesus said in this dream? Give me your sin. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sin. Give me your sin. Isn't that good? That's what we do. We bring to the cross our sins. We bring to the cross our failures. We, 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 we bring to him those things that we're ashamed of, what we feel guilty about, what's been condemning us. We bring it all to Jesus because it's there on the cross he died for our sins. And it's there on the cross, that the blood of Jesus that was shed there can wash away those sins. That's what we bring to Jesus. So go to Jesus. The Bible says to confess your sins, and you know what? He'll he'll forgive you. Go to Jesus because he's the only one who died for your sins. And go to Jesus because, you know what? He can truly forgive you and cleanse you, and love you, and you can have eternal life with him. Let's close our eyes right now. I want to pray for you. Anyone there, maybe connected online, or anybody here. Perhaps this chapter's been really hitting you, and it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the suffering Messiah, and he's here speaking through his word because he loves you and he wants to save you. If you've not given your life to Christ, this is the time. If you want to rededicate and recommit your life to Christ, this is the time. All you need to do is just repeat after me and just pray this simple prayer. So repeat, dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I confess my sins before you. Please forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Help me. I want to give my life to you. Jesus, I believe in you. You are Lord and Savior. 
And tonight, I give you my life. I commit my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit now. Give me a new life. Help me to live for you now and not myself. Lord, I accept you into my heart. I give you my heart. And now I know that I have heaven in my future. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you prayed that prayer, and if you have, welcome to the family of God. Jesus loves you, and I hope that you will truly surrender all to him, no matter where you're at with the Lord, that you would understand everything that Christ has done as we have read this chapter. And if he has given his whole life his whole uh, sacrificing everything on the cross for you. May we do the same for him. Let me pray for you guys one more time. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And I pray, God, that as we close in worship, that we truly worship you and understand all that you've done for us and the ins and outs and that it would impact us and and. Lord, I pray that we just read this chapter again, Lord, to know all that you've done, Lord, all that, God, you sacrificed for us, all that you endured, Lord, how you're despised and rejected. Lord, thank you that you did that for us, and we are grateful forever. And so, God, as we close, hear our hearts as we sing to you, God, as we give you everything, Lord, as we remember you and who you are and what you've done for us, God. Lord, you are everything to us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.